Because of the following special program, Maud, All's Fair, and the Sonny and Cher Show will not be presented this evening. Elvis Presley died today. He was 42. Apparently, it was a heart attack. The Federal Aviation Administration reports that a plane carrying 25 persons crashed tonight in southwest Mississippi. Among those aboard, the Leonard Skinner Rock Group. An FAA spokesman says he received a report of multiple fatalities and some survivors in the crash of the Convair 240. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. All right, it's that all-important time once again. Time for rock and roll. Time to take a trip back in the time machine. And yeah, it's time for the Decibel Geek Podcast. I'm Aaron Camaro, joined as always right here, right now, by Chris Sinzak. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic, man. We had so much fun last week in 1977. I got thinking about it. And I think, like, if if you had to have the choice and say, you have to Groundhog's Day a year, mm-hmm. you know, but you have to pick what year it is, I, I th- almost think I'd go with 77. I would live 77 over and over again. But you can't do the show anymore. So, Kiss Mania. Yeah, but it'll be the end of the Decibel Geek podcast as we know it. Oh, well, I guess that ain't going to work then. You like how it rained on your parade? <laughs> she totally ruined it's it. It's a great year that, like, Duh. we had on a lot of the responses we got from the episode was, you know, a lot of people reminiscing on 1977 because it's the perfect storm of pop culture, music, and rock and roll and everything. It just, a lot of people's favorite things happened around this time. Yeah. And if you think about rock and roll, you know, being at the peak it is. You really got to be good. It's like the the bands that we're talking about are the upper echelon of what's going on in not just music, but all of entertainment, because it wasn't overshadowed by the Internet or video games or all the technological advances that we have right now that there's so much more emphasis on the movies, on TV shows, on music, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's. That's the forefront. That's cutting edge right now in 1977, and I don't yeah. think I'd want it any other way. It would be a fun year to go back and visit because, um, as we said, I was you were just a couple, two or three years old, and I was one year old when this happened. So yeah. it's one of those things where I, I would have loved to have been a teenager in this year just to experience all of that stuff when it was happening. Yeah, but I see your point. You know, no iTunes, no Decibel Geek, none of that. I mean, without iTunes, no iTunes reviews. And if we didn't get iTunes reviews, man, you know, it just wouldn't. Life wouldn't be the same. But you know what's even better than a five-star iTunes review? What? A five-star iTunes review in person. So without further ado, I give you awesome Decibel Geek fan right here, Mr. Paul Korn. Just to explain to listeners, Paul and his lovely wife are in town from Oklahoma. Is it not a wife? Okay, Paul yet, and Paul yet. and his and his soon to be wife are in town from Oklahoma. You like no how pressure. I just pushed you into marriage there? No pressure now. And uh, as we you know, welcoming as we are, Aaron and I, well, cool, come over and hang out while we record. Yeah. So he's in town, and uh, you know, what do you think of Nashville so far? It's pretty awesome. Glad to be here. It's pretty exciting. Cool. So um, we're gonna have you read your own review on the the show here. All right, this is a uh, review of the Bizarro Covers episode, and uh, here it goes. Uh, A fantastic variant of the Decibel Geek podcast, the Bizarro Covers series delves not into the various wigs and toupees worn by the late Kevin Dubrow, 
but rather hard rock and heavy metal renditions of musical works originally performed by other artists. In these episodes, one can expect only the unexpected, so embrace the uncertainty and step into the bizarro world with Chris and Aaron for a ride like no other. Five stars. I like hearing that. So um, we have to plan to do an in-depth look at the various wigs and toupees of Kevin Dubrow. It makes sense. No, I mean, sometimes when ideas come to you, it it doesn't matter where they come from or who they come from. Yes. It just matters that it's a good idea. And obviously, that's a fantastic idea. Yes. So when we do it, you'll know who to blame. That's a two-parter right there. (laughs) That's a two-parter if i ever seen one. So so Paul and his soon-to-be wife are going to sit in and listen to us (laughs) record today. playing matchmaker live that's right now you have to make us godfathers of the children you already have oh those (laughs) poor little bastards all right so um so they'll be we'll be the pod fathers that's more like it okay so um another thing we should do is geeks of the week this week absolutely there are people if you want to be a geek of the week all you have to do is share on facebook and retweet on twitter and these are the people that did that for last week's 1977 year in review part one episode geeks of the week this week are joey vancieri okay now good lord aaron are you looking at the name i'm looking Uh, at this is where it sucks to be me mc mm, mckint's Tainaz, Marquinas McGuire. Wasn't that a Superman villain? I don't like know. Like, if you got him to say his name backwards, sounds like something some, awesome would happen. It sounds like something from a pharmaceutical company. But, <laughs> um, okay, Miguel Nunez, Dan Miles, Danny Lewis, Kukler, Kenny Stetka, Dave Shirt, Matt Ashcraft, Brent Walter, Joseph Belly, Mike Stewart, David Alpazar, Chad Pollock, Aaron Baker, Michael Bartley, Michelle Bru- Brunoni, Joe Royland, Sit and Spin with Joe, Ian Wildly of Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. I was guest on that this week. Yeah. Alan Tate, Billy Hardaway, Ride for Dime Nashville shared it. We are sponsoring Ride for Dime Nashville October 16th. We want to see you there. Come hang out with us and watch Slaughter and Big Rock Show and all the other great bands. Um, Alan Tate, Billy Hardaway, I uh, said that already. Brad Kalmanson, James Brendan Dunn, David Glenn, Darren Park, and Antony Espinufano. Andrew Jacobs, Trevor McDougal, Nick Rose, Hoop, Stealth, Ernesto Aguiar, The Mooger Fugger, Viking Girl, T.J. Cullen, George Savistano, Colin Francis, Nick Minow, Adam Cox, Jens Helberg, Derek Novak, Music Mags and Wax, The Tall Boys, Billy Hardcore, J. Motown Drummer, and Mikhail Burrell. And since Paul's here with us, we'll give him a break for and not Paul sharing Paul. it this week. <laughs> <laughs> he will. He just hasn't gotten around to it yet. It's all good. You ready to get into 1977 Part 2? Yes, we covered The Price of Bacon in Part 1, so we yes, don't have we to do did. that this week. That's right, so we can jump right into it, and I can't think of a better place to start with a band that is... By 1977, been around for five years and has already released seven studio albums. Now, even with the 1975 edition of Tommy Shaw and a few minor hits, Styx has failed into breaking into that upper echelon of 1977 superstardom. Like we said, it's hard to achieve in this day. There's only room for so many up there. So in uh, 1977, they take another stab at it with the Grand Illusion album. And while it wasn't an instant success, it would go on to sell 3 million copies in the U.S. and go triple platinum and reach number six on the U.S. album charts. While on tour after the release of the album, it said that Tommy Shaw would go to every single radio station near every single one of their gigs and basically go there and beg them to play the song Come Sail Away. Really? You ever heard that song? A couple times. (laughs) I love the South Park rendition. But yeah, yeah, it's made super famous by that. But he would go there and beg them, please play this song. And they say that was a big part of it because people like Tommy Shaw. And they say, okay, we'll play it. And it was such a far old prog rock, you know, precursor Mm -hmm. that people were kind of blown away by it. It wasn't easy for them because they're pretty unique. Like I said, prog rock kind of mixed with arena rock. (laughs) 
sticks. Yeah. Um, he definitely brought a different dimension to their sound because you had the theatrical side with the Dennis DeYoung material, and then yeah. Tommy had the kind of the hard rock stuff. Totally. You know, and as loved as sticks had become, you could see how a band like this would be easy targets for, like we talked about, the punk scene going on in the UK. Oh, yeah. You know, and we, that's going to be a recurring theme here again this week as it was last week. You know, punk is huge in Europe right now, and in America, it seems like it's more bands like sticks, yeah. kiss. Ted Nugent, guys like that, you know, blue collar rock and roll. So for all the times that, you know, we've done these year in reviews and some man, you know, that damn Europe, they're so cool. You mm-hmm. know, they, they sure know what's up, you know, and they make America look bad all the time. Well, for once, <laughs> 1977, I think we've got it going on a little better. Yeah. Well, do you think that uh, punk rockers in, in Europe were saying, we have to rebel against sticks? Sticks, totally. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's a bunch of bands like that in yeah. 77 that I'm sure they're like, whatever that is, yeah. we're not that. You know, right. we're the extreme opposite as, as we can from the sweet or sticks or something like that, you know? Um, this is worthy of noting. It's not certainly not a big favorite of Aaron or mine, but uh, July 9th, Donna Summer's hit record, I Feel Love, is released in the UK. It's the first hit record to have an entirely synthesized backing track and that wow. was that was a uh foreshadowing of things to come because synthesizers really took over after that sure yeah and you know nowadays you don't even have to have a band to have a band no, you, you need a, a machine yeah you know? so you know we're talking about playing some of the uh, iconic you know big acts of 77 but uh, i'm gonna play one that certainly never got any success but it goes without mentioning that i have to bring it up there was a band called treasure that put a self-titled album out in 1977 <laughs> i think i see where you're going with this this comes from a challenge from one of our listeners oh yeah yeah well, i don't remember which listener it was but when we put part one up somebody somebody made a snarky comment going how are you going to fit Vinnie Vincent into this episode, Chris. Oh, it's 1977. There's a way to do it. Vinnie Vincent at the time was known as Vinnie Cusano, and he was part of this band called Treasure. And they uh, featured ex-Rascals lead singer keyboardist Felix Cavallari and uh, also Jack Scarangella on drums and Rick Laird of the Mahavishnu Orchestra on bass. And they put out a self-titled album on Epic Records. It didn't do anything. It, the treasure, you know, this is some serious AM gold that you're about to hear. Yeah. And you're only going to hear a little bit of it. But this is Vinny on guitar and vocals on a song called Turn Yourself Around. <laughs> sitting in here. <laughs> I love Vinnie Vincent, but ooh. What a blistering guitar solo yeah. from the one and only Vinnie Vincent. 
But yeah, that's treasure. That's what Vinny was up to in 1977. Uh, at least he was up to something back then. Yeah. You know, he was coming on with music. No lawsuits had been filed yet, I don't think. All right. Good deal. Uh, let's see. We're getting into July in uh, that month. Uh, Led Zeppelin is on its very last tour in the United States, which I meant to mention in episode one, mm-hmm. opened by Judas Priest. Wow. What Judas a Priest that is. opening for Zeppelin. Yeah. That final show in Oakland. I think the last two shows on that tour was Priest and, was Priest and Zeppelin, maybe nice. somebody else. But uh, I know the story, it's funny, a brawl erupts backstage in Zeppelin's crew and the staff of uh, promoter Bill Graham. Wow. There's, it was a melee. There was some kind of big old brawl backstage. Charges are filed. It's a mess. Mm. And then it wasn't too long after that, of course, then Robert Plant would get called back to England and, yeah. and you know, Bonham you know, would end up dying and Zeppelin would never come back to the United States. So in 1977... Missed, you know, a time, like we said, where Zeppelin's not real well received in their homeland right now because mm-hmm. who's more, like you said, if you're going to be punk rock, you don't want to be anything like Led no. Zeppelin. No, Zeppelin was like, they were the man that you were rebelling against by that right. point. But here in the United States, they were still the golden gods and people wanted to see them. And it's a shame that they, they never made it through to finish up the rest of that tour and it was... By all accounts, you know, how the West was won. Well, yeah, and Plant's son died right, from a respiratory yeah. virus that year. It was some sad stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, it took Zeppelin a long time to rebound from 1977, but, you know, it's a shame because U.S. loved them, but they just didn't get enough. So we got to move into August. This was a big story, and people that were around in 77 still talk about it to this day. David Berkowitz, who was also known as the Son of Sam, is captured in Yonkers, New York, after a year of murders in the city. It's crazy. He, you know, he really changed the complexion in New York City during that time. Yeah. Um, and there's a great movie called Summer of Sam that kind of—it's a fictional account, but it's—it's kind of representative of the panic that he caused in the city. Yeah. Because no one knew who he was or when he was going to strike next, and he was killing a ton of people. And then his mugshot, he's got a big smile on his face. I mean, the guy is nuts. Well, isn't that the guy that his, he said his neighbor's dog told yes. him to do it? Yeah. Jesus. That's pretty messed up stuff. You know, and it's kind of a sign of the times there. Like, 77 is, you know, in the whole landscape as far as that goes. You know, it's about that time parents start thinking more about letting their kids run around in the streets late at night it's because more and more, yeah, do you know, <laughs> you know where, where your, your children, children are? are. Yeah, yep. sure, of course. Stuff like that is what led to all that. You know what else is scary? What? Motorhead. Especially that mole. <laughs> you know, it's tough being a rock band in London in 1977, and really nobody can attest to that better than Lemmy because since leaving, well, we'll say leaving, he was fired from Hawkwind, and he formed Motorhead with Filthy Animal Taylor and Fast Eddie Clark, but wow. the band has done nothing but struggle, and their peak at this time is opening for Blue Oyster Cult at the Hammersmith Odeon, but no record company support, Lemmy and the boys are... They're going broke, man. They're headed to the poorhouse. They're not going to make it. So what they decide to do is give up. Yeah. All hope is gone. There will be no Motorhead. Motorhead will not rule for many, many years to come. It's over. But if it's going to end, let's let's get a mobile recording unit in here and record our last show. So at least, you know, they got something to show for it. So they were just going to give it up. Yeah, it was over. They wanted to just record this final show because they thought, we did all this work for the last year. Let's have something to show for it. So they got a guy who owned a local studio to agree to do it on a mobile recording unit. Now, the planned recording didn't work out, so instead... He offered Motorhead two days of studio time to record a single as a last-ditch effort to try to save what could be the career of Motorhead. Because it's like, well, I guess let's go record a down a, a single. Probably and, not expecting anything. To you come know, out yeah. Of it either. So what do they do? They do what Lemmy and the boys do. 
they go in there and they say, we're not going to work on a single. We're going to belt out an album's worth of demos in two days. We're going to come out with an album. So upon hearing what the band had laid down, the owner decides, well, holy shit. I'm going to pay for a little more time. Let's complete this and see what we got. And what do you get? You get Motorhead's debut album. still doing it today you know i don't believe that motorhead was the least bit intimidated by the punk movement that they found themselves in the middle of in 1977 you know and i've read that motorhead was even embraced by the punk rockers in london which you know in my opinion motorhead's debut album may be the single most punk rock album that we discussed today if not ever they were down and dirty they were that that's i don't know punk my rock, next pick is know? pretty punk rock so, you know, not because of the music, but because of the attitude and right. maybe the recording circumstance. But That's interesting, though, that they were like that close to just it was calling over, it a day. Man. Yeah, it was all and, over. And it wasn't going to happen. Go into a studio and knock it out, and then, oh, all of a sudden, hey, we have an audience. Yeah, they still got a long ways to go, but yeah. the 80s is right around the corner from Motorhead. Hang on, guys. Wild. It's almost here. All right, well, probably the biggest, This well, this, this is one of the biggest news stories of the year. On August 16th, Elvis Presley is found dead at his home, Graceland, in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. Talk about something that changed the world, yeah. you know, because Elvis was, I mean, I don't think somebody being our age can really appreciate just how over Elvis was, you know, just how popular this guy was on a worldwide scale. You know, he was he was the Beatles and the Stones yes. and everything all wrapped up into one. He was the originator. You know, yeah. he was the guy that influenced everything else. Like if you take your favorite rock band nowadays and you trace them roots back far enough, it yep. goes to Elvis every time. It does. Every time. I mean, yeah, it, it starts with him. And rock and roll doesn't become a thing without Elvis Presley. Absolutely. You know, and um, died in a horrible fashion. You know, did, he didn't take care of himself at the end there and had issues with drugs and, you know, should have lived a much longer life. Or or did he die? Nor did he die. I heard he lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan, runs a gas station. I heard he changed his name to Paul Corn is living somewhere in Oklahoma. No shit. Yeah. Wow, we're surrounded by greatness. <laughs> Is this Priscilla next to you? Um, no, uh, but yeah, it, huge news story. And I remember my aunt and uncle lived down in Memphis at the time it happened, and they w would talk about the massive amount of people yeah, that showed up for the, the pilgrimage. Yeah, pilgrimage like, from um, across the nation. People came from all over the place to be there to see, mm -hmm. you know, the this procession. Is, it was like seventy-five thousand people lined the streets of Memphis. That's insane. Who and who else in history could garner that? It's crazy. Not a musician, I wouldn't think. Nobody was ever as popular as Elvis. Probably Nobody. Not. Other uh, 
famous deaths from uh, 1977, Groucho Marx, Charlie Chaplin, Joan Crawford, Bing Crosby, of course, Mark Boland we you talked know. about last week. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, not, that's another thing. 77 wasn't a bad year. We didn't lose a lot. You know, there was, right. there was some key losses there, you know, but not really, you know, a whole lot. On the other hand, you got births, you know, in 1977 was the birth of Floyd Mayweather Jr., Orlando Bloom, Randy Moss, Tom Brady, John Cena, and Brock Lesnar. You know who put this list together. <laughs> well, another thing that's cool about 1977 was although they gave us Shakira, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Fiona Apple, and Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> 1977 also gave us Joey Fatone, Kanye West, and Screech. Yikes. So maybe it wasn't that good of a year. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Screech made a porno. Think about that for a second. All right, moving on. August twentieth, NASA's unmanned probe Voyager two was launched carrying a gold record containing sounds and images representing life and culture on Earth, including the first movements of Bach's Brandenburg Concerto and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Juan Pigu Pinju's Lou Shu played on the Gookin and Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good. Now, I can get down with Chuck Berry, but the rest of that stuff, why didn't they? You know, I got to think that if they'd have just stuck Love Gun in there, we'd have had contact years ago. I was thinking about this the other day on a side note. Would a lesbian bar be considered a Love Gun free zone? So uh, we move into September, and uh, Aaron picked a pretty punk rock, you know, for his last pick, a punk rock song. I think this is a very punk rock band, too. I'm talking about <laughs> They came out with Canadian a, punk, yeah, right? They came out with a Farewell to Kings on September 1st. It's their fifth studio album released on Anthem Records. It was their first U.S. gold-selling album, receiving the certification within two months of its release, and was eventually certified platinum. And uh, we're about to go into a break, and this tune has lyrics by Getty Lee, not by Neil Peart. And this is a song called Cinderella Man. To lift America, climb into a 77 Camaro. Camaro is a driver's car, low in profile and wide between the wheels. A spirited, responsive road car that feels as good as it looks. A lift America, not just a ride. Sample it yourself. Test drive a spirited 77 Camaro at your Chevrolet dealers now. 
smooth talking, the Fonz Pinball. Wanna play me? Play the Fonz Pinball, a rugged machine with plenty of fast action. Pretty slick, huh? The Fonz Pinball is the real thing with drag strip raceways. Lots of bumper action, too. Watch those independent action flippers. Toy picks. Bells, lights, real scarring. The Fonz Pinball Machine. Hey. By Coleco. You're listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast as we take you into the world of 1977. It wasn't all Kiss Mania, was it? No, that song you're hearing there is pretty punk rock. <laughs> That's the it's emotions. A, the emotions with a huge hit from 1977 underground UK scene. Right. <laughs> Best of my love. Number one on the charts in September of 1977. You know, in, in Europe they got the punk rock thing, but in the US it's all soft AM gold type stuff like dominating treasure. the airwaves. <laughs> like, yeah, like everybody except Treasure. Right. They should have been big. Man, there were some awesome TV shows back in the late 70s. You know, I Obviously, in 1977, the hottest women on TV are Diane, Holly, and Janice of The Price is Right. Mm. Yeah. In fact, in 1977, The Price is Right is the scene of the one of the world's most famous, most favorite wardrobe malfunctions when a woman in a tube top comes running down a contestant's row and she's bouncing and she's she's all over the place and boing, boing, boing. there they are. There they are. On The <laughs> Price is Right, right there on national TV. Well, you gotta love YouTube, that. I gotta look that up. 1977 TV debuts, Three's Company. That's a huge one. Everybody loves that in 77. The Love Boat. Yeah, everybody remembers that one, right? Yeah. The Love Boat. I remember reruns of it, but yeah. Uh, Circus of the Stars comes out in 1977, and also debuting in 1977 is the Richard Pryor Show. That was a good show. Goodbye in 1977, The Electric Company. Do you remember The Electric Company? Hey, you guys. I remember the live-action Spider-Man comic thing. That's the, know, that's the only thing I remember about that. I remember watching that show as a little bitty kid. I do too. Waiting for Spider-Man. You remember Morgan Freeman got his start on The Electric Company. Really? Yeah, he was a character called Easy Reader. Was that a Spider-Man villain? No. <laughs> it looked like a pimp from the 70s is what he looked like. Nice. So it wasn't much of a stretch for him back then. <laughs> uh, also, uh, goodbye to TV in 1977. Sanford and Son ends their long run. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore is done. And also, goodbye to the Richard Pryor show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it didn't take long. One year. Most people would say after that, what the hell were you thinking putting that guy on primetime yeah, TV anyway? Not, He's insane. Not ready for primetime. This man is clearly on a lot of drugs right now yeah. as this show is being filmed. It's a funny show. So top five shows from 1977 in the good old USA. Number five, All in the Family. Mm-hmm. Archie Bunker. My grandpa and my dad love that show. Oh yeah, my family loved it too. Uh, Sixty minutes in at number four. That was, you know, that was a big news source. It's still and, around. And yeah, it totally is. Number three, the debuting Three's Company. Everybody was digging that. Number two, Happy Days. But this is where we get the term "jumping the shark." Yes. Remember that? Yeah, Fonzie because the shark. that was where they figured that was the they went death knell. Yeah, they went too <laughs> far. That was their. Uh, that's the end of Happy Days, yeah. pretty much. You know, when they when he's jumping the shark in the tank and all that stuff, and he, or no, he was he was water skiing. Water skiing. That's over right. The shark. Yeah. Oh my goodness, what were they thinking? They were thinking we need more spinoff shows from Happy Days because it's working in 1977. Because the number one show of the year, Milwaukee's own Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, I remember watching that as a child. 
Me too. Lenny and Squiggy. Yeah, Lenny and Squiggy. Those guys and were awesome. The, the big ragu. Yeah, good stuff. Good TV. In I gotta get a, one of those shirts with an embroider cursive C on it. Like totally a, like do. Like a Laverne had with the. Yeah, yeah you totally do. It's you like, should. Just in case you forget which clothes are yours, you have to have that <laughs> embroidered letter on it. <laughs> Only if you had a roommate that looked a lot like you. But, you yeah, know, that's true. About the same size. <laughs> Back to the rock and roll in 1977. Hey, we talked about them in part one, but luckily for us, we're back to talk about them in part two, and I'm talking about Cheap Trick. And they're striking while the iron is hot with a quick follow-up to their debut album. Well, you call it striking while the iron's hot, but it ain't that hot. This is more like try again, because the first one didn't take off the way they hoped it would. Um, They're back again in this part of the year with the album In Color. Epic Records knew they had something good in Cheap Trick, but the band hadn't connected with a commercial audience the way that they had envisioned that they would when they first signed them. They saw that band, it's like, these guys are going to be huge. And they thought they were going to be huge right out the gate, but they weren't. You know, so that's why you get two albums from them. The funny story with this is famous A&R man Tom Werman, who signed the band to Epic, decided to produce the follow-up himself to ensure a poppier, more radio-friendly product. But the efforts to slicken it up took more away from the sound than it did really to help it, I think. Mm. I no, think that's so. That's debatable. Yeah. At the time, even, these awesome songs that were on this album were being ignored completely. They had no U.S. charting singles off of it, and although they released I Want You to Want Me and Southern Girls, it really didn't take off for them. Now, this might be debatable, but, I mean, I think it, it's a testament to how kind of funny production can kind of mess up a really good album. Well, the uh, well, the song I Want You to Want Me, the studio version of it totally pales in comparison to the version on Budokan. Right, because two years later, when they released the live, more bombastic-sounding version of the song from Budokan, it's a huge hit, yeah. you know, and it kind of shows that the songs, yeah. you know, because they were good songs... You know, it's it's one of the best albums ever, really. But, so, yeah. you know, there's something not right about it. And it's got to be, it's maybe not the songs, but the way people were hearing them. Right. That makes me think that the production was kind of funny on it. It was viewed at the time as another commercial disappointment. And in 1977, I don't think they loved them in the UK, but they're pretty big in Japan. So don't worry <laughs> about Cheap Trick. The 80s are also right around the corner. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely into the song Southern Girls. I've always loved that song. Oh, I love it. Um, okay, a so, lot of good songs on that album, but people weren't hearing it at the time. Yeah, my next pick, of course, is no surprise. I If Thin Lizzy puts an album out in, that, in a certain year, of course, I've got to play something from it. But, man, uh, Bad Reputation comes out on September 2nd. Arguably their best record. I kind of flip-flop 
you know, depending on the mood. But there's times where I feel like this is their best record. It was their eighth studio album released on Mercury Records, produced by Tony Visconti, who did most of T-Rex's catalog. Uh, most of the tracks feature only three quarters of the band, with guitarist Brian Robertson only credited on three tracks. He had missed most of the previous tour following an injury sustained in a brawl. Wow. And uh, this turned out to be his last studio effort with the band. That's Thin Lizzy for you. Uh, this is one of those songs that he was involved in. This is Thin Lizzy with Opium Trail. Fist fighting music. Yeah. That's, that's music to bust your knuckles to. It's one of their heavier tunes. I like it. Yeah. Those guys just don't get enough credit, I don't think. And and to see how big they, they were in 77 in is kind of a testament to, you know, I mean, yeah, they weren't disco and they weren't no. punk rock and they weren't Kiss, but, man, they were putting out some damn good music back Absolutely. then. Absolutely. That, and that album, you know, like I said, it's uh, features three-quarters of the band on most of it, but they still pulled it off. But Scott Gorham realized they had to double-track the guitars because you, yeah. you got to have the double guitar solos. You know? Yeah, for Thin Lizzy, you got to. And Brian Robertson, man, he, that's somebody who truly lives the uh, outlaw rocker reputation. You know? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> they get to lose your spot in a band because you got in a brawl. Love it. So September 11th comes around and some big news in the electronics field. Oh, huge news. That's the year that Atari comes out with the uh, their home computer system. The Atari 2600, baby. Yep. You got the Donkey Kong. You got the Donkey Kong Jr. You got the Pac-Man. You got the Miss Pac-Man. You got the, oh, man, combat and space invaders. And you can play all this stuff right in your home. It was... Uh, it's like the greatest day ever when my parents showed up with that thing. Yeah. I didn't have the fortune of having a 2600. No? We had the Atari 400. Yeah. Which was a box that had a keyboard on it and a huh. tape drive. And you put the fucking and you play pong. Oh no, we had and a, that's it. The, the, well, this was pong was like pretty much all they had at the beginning, but like this was like 1982, I think. Yeah, when we got the Atari 400, and we had this game called called Zaxxon with two X's. Yeah, okay. And, uh, basically, what you would do is you would load the tape, the game tape, into the machine, and you'd go make a sandwich, 
and you'd take a nap. <laughs> and then when you were done with your nap, the game was ready to play. Yeah. And then you would die within the first five seconds, and then you would start over again. Oh, man. And it was That's awesome. lame. And I'm sh- <laughs> I don't believe it was in the year 1977 no, 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 that no, I got my 2600 either. I'm sure it was it, many years later. It was very bare bones the first year but still i'm sure the people that were playing with it were amazed by i'm it. sure i probably got the 2600 probably the year the nintendo came out <laughs> oh really <laughs> like pac-man this is awesome yeah i had to go to my friend's houses to play pac-man and pitfall and all that stuff yeah, yeah i man. loved it though it's funny to think how amazing that was at the time and then you know to look at what there is available video game wise now today Oh yeah, it's completely different. It's like, can it you just, imagine putting a kid down in front of a twenty six hundred today? Even a six and they'd year be old. like, well, six year old, be like, fuck you. Yeah, like I don't care that I just said the f word. Especially this in this day, bullshit. And age. Yeah, what the fuck is How this? How dare you? I'm gonna run. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running away from home. Yeah. So, um, another thing that came out in seventy seven was an album by the band called The Babies. Some people may not know who the Babies were. I don't really know a whole lot about the Babies. Well, they were basically a pop rock band, and the most famous member, I would say, is John Waite, who was the vocalist. Okay. John Waite wound up having a big hit on a solo album called Missing You that was a big ballad in the 80s. Yeah, he was a big 80s guy. And then uh, was fronted a band called Bad English that was kind of an offshoot of Journey in the late 80s, When I See You Smile was their big ballad. Oh, yeah. So he was a big kind of solo artist, but the Babies did have a little bit of a heyday in the 70s. Uh, I'm going to play something off their second album called Broken Heart, released on Chrysalis Records. This album was produced by Ron Nevison, who would go on to produce an amazing album called Crazy Six for Kids. (laughs) I knew that was coming. (laughs) This is the Babies with Give Me Your Love. Also mentioned the babies for a little while after this album featured a keyboardist named Jonathan Kane who would go on to join Journey and write Open Arms with Steve Perry and Journey would become a massive hit after that. So the babies are kind of like a, a breeding ground for eighties power ballads. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. But that song that you played is pretty rocking. It's pretty I like good that. stuff. It's yeah, but bluesy. Yeah, so I mean it's you know, interesting stuff to listen to from the seventies. I want to play a little bit of stuff that might be a little lesser known too. Okay, of course. That's good. Okay, here's something and this is one of those things where, like, uh, you know, I my love of the New York Dolls and all its members kind of com- comes later on in my life. I get into them more in my 30s. 
because honestly, when I became a Kiss fan, when I was a teenager, I kept hearing about how amazing the New York Dolls are and how there would be no Kiss if it wasn't for the New York Dolls. Right. And when I was younger and didn't really have much of a refined palate about music, I listened to it and I'm like, well, Kiss is way better than these guys. Right. Like, this is sloppy <laughs> stuff. But you have to look at it in context and you have to educate yourself about certain eras. And in my 30s, I started getting into the whole New York scene that Kiss came out of. And you look at the rough around the edges bands that were around at that time. Imagine being in New York in 1972. That'd be awesome. And the climate of what's going on musically in the country and then hearing the New York Dolls. Right. If you look at it in that context, they were much more of a mind-blowing type act. Well, the New York Dolls had a kind of a standout guitar player named Johnny Thunders. And Johnny would go on after the dolls basically imploded um, due to their own problems. And uh, Johnny had a massive heroin habit, but was kind of an innovative guitar player. He was sloppy, but the guy had just a certain style to his playing, similar to Ace Fraley, you know, kind of like we're just kind of an outlaw type rock and roller. Right. And he uh, set up this band called the Heartbreakers. And uh, the Heartbreakers was Johnny Thunders, Jerry Nolan, who was also the dolls drummer, Walter Lure, and Billy Rath. And their music was kind of a mixture of punk, R&B, and rock and roll. In the fall of 76, Malcolm McLaren, who had informally managed the New York Dolls in their waning days, invited them to come to England and participate in the Sex Pistols Anarchy Tour along with The Clash and The Damned, who were re replaced by the Buzzcocks shortly after the tour ensued. I mean, that's a, if you're into that type of stuff, that's yeah. an amazing... That's like a murderer's row of, of bands for that era. So your band, your band, it starts with a the, does it? <laughs> it starts with a the, you're a the something? You come on tour with us, right? Pretty much, yeah, that's the requirement. You All right, start punk rock. The punk rock. Um, but the band accepted the offer. They arrived in London on December 1st, the same day that the Pistols swore at Bill Gundy on live primetime television, which precipitated the cancellation of most of the tour. Yeah. Stranded in England with little money after the Anarchy Tour came to a halt, the band contemplated a retreating to New York, but their manager, Lee Black Childers, convinced them to stay in England, believing that they would have more success over there because the punk rock thing was taking off. Right, on. yeah. So after several gigs in London, Track Records offered the Heartbreakers a recording contract, and they put out an album called L-A-M-F, and L-A-M-F stands for Like a Motherfucker. Like a Motherfucker. All right, I like that. This is Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers with a song called Born to Lose. Rough around the edges, sloppy, but yeah. still really cool and full of attitude. I do like that. See, you know, and it's hard to, you know, for us to be rock and rollers who appreciate our, you know, virtuoso musicians, it's kind of hard sometimes to admit that you like punk. But, you know, in, when you look at it as far as attitude and, you know, presentation, right. 
it goes right along with what we love here at Decibel Geek. You know, it's right in vain with that when it comes to those two right. aspects of the music. Were these guys virtuosos? No. Well, Johnny Thunders kind of was. You know, he was damn good. He was good, but it's like it's one of those. It's almost one of those things where, like, maybe the it's the twelve year twelve year old in you that won't die. Right. Where it's like the the badassness of a certain rocker because right. of their horrible reputation. Yeah. Is still alluring as a fan. It's like Guns N' Roses right. pissing on an airplane. Yeah. Or something, it's like wow, know? that's cool. You know. Yeah. Totally. But it, you know, of course the the lifestyle would catch up to Johnny and it also is catch up with Jerry Nolan. Johnny died in 1991 from a heroin overdose and Jerry Nolan died in 1992 from complications from many years of heroin stuff. Basically yeah. folks don't mess around with heroin. I don't do heroin. <laughs> it's just a bad, bad idea. You know, if the, if you can take anything away from rock and roll, it's don't do heroin. Pretty much. Look at the guys that did. Did do any of those guys come out and say, "Hey, it worked out great for me"? No, it never does. Not one of them. No. Not a single it's one. A, it's a bad news drug. Yeah. On October 9th, Aerosmith cancels several of their tour dates after Joe Perry and Steven Tyler are injured by an M80 explosive thrown on stage at the Philadelphia Spec. That's the same shit that Roger Waters is talking about. Take your fireworks outside, assholes. <laughs> yeah, it happened to Peter Chris too on one of the Kisses tours around yeah. this time. I mean, an M80. That's like dynamite. Yeah, it. You it know, that's serious. It burns Steven Tyler's left cornea. And cut Joe Perry's left hand. Can you imagine just being a band on stage, kicking ass, rocking out, and all of a sudden some dumbass throws a freaking piece of dynamite that? on stage? Why show up to have a good time at a show and then fuck with the band like that? I don't it get just shows. what's the point. It just shows you have to be careful when you go to concerts. Hell, nowadays you got to be careful where you go anywhere because there's always that one fucked up individual yeah. that'll screw it up for everybody. So best thing you can do? is be aware of your surroundings. Whether you're in 1977 or in 2015, just be aware of your surroundings wherever you go. That's true. And that's your safety notice from Aaron Camaro. And uh, also (laughs) thing to know, if uh, Aerosmith says this plane is too ratcheted up for us to fly on, don't buy it. You shouldn't fly on it either. (laughs) In 1977, Street Survivors is the fifth and final true Leonard Skinner classic studio album. It's released on October 17th and just three days later, a small plane chartered by Leonard Skinner crashed in Gillsburg, Mississippi during its flight from Greensville, South Carolina to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. With no way to foretell what was to come, the album cover features the band appearing to be engulfed in flames. Yeah. You know, that's bad news. I you have know? a vinyl copy of the man. before they fixed it. It's so sad, man. Later, MCA would pull the album and re release it with a different photo of the band on the cover and a few additional songs as well man that's that's messed up you know that's crazy how fate just kind of intervenes like that Leonard Skinner was they were on the rise they sure were you know and every album that they were coming out with was a little bit bigger than the one before it and talk about a band that represents an entire region oh totally of the country at that time even nowadays you know yeah Yeah. to this day they're still an iconic band for this part of the country Florida to Tennessee you know it's it's Skinner ignore them no way you know and you know maybe that's why I probably appreciate Skinner a little more than you do being that I grew up in Wisconsin and didn't have to listen to it on the they school bus every single day. Yeah. Yeah, they were <laughs> Like every school bus ride starts here. with Skinner and ends with oh, Skinner. They were everywhere around here. Man, on the heels of a big tragedy, this album would peak at number 5 on the US album charts and went double platinum and would become their most successful album. That's kind of the way it goes, you know, the shock of losing the band plus the knowing that this is the last music you're probably going to get creates kind of a frenzy for it. This album, man, it features icon songs like What's Your Name? And it is lo- it's also got awesome rocking tunes on it like You Got That Right and That Smell. 
always love that opening riff on that song, that smell. That's it's one of the another one hook. of those where it got played, it got played so much on the radio that it burned people out. But the, yeah. if you separate yourself for a while and then go back and listen to it, it's like, wow, that's a pretty damn good riff. You know? Totally, kind of like Barracuda. Yeah. Uh, the reissue of Street Survivors features the unreleased songs "George Peaches" and "Sweet Little Missy," which are two of my absolute favorite Skinner tunes. Um, by uh, 1977, Ronnie Van Zant and Steve Gaines had become the driving force behind yeah. the songwriting of the band, and both members were lost in that plane crash. And Skinner would be no more until 1987 when six of the one-time members of Skinner would reunite and recruit Johnny's younger bro- or, uh, Ronnie's younger brother Johnny mm-hmm. to fill some pretty massive shoes, yeah. which they continue to do to this now. day. You they know? just played here in Nashville like last week, I think. You gotta, you know, you've heard those songs played to death on the radio. I know you have, but you, deep down, you gotta respect Leonard Skinner because, man, for for what they were, you know, what they were labeled as as being just like these southern rock yokels. Right. Listen to some of that guitar work. It's listen to some of them solos on that Skinner stuff. Amazing, and I think mm-hmm. rock and rollers kind of tend to overlook Skinner, but I think you owe it to kind of dig into that back catalog a little bit. It's a testament to how good they were for the fact that they broke through big in an era of all this other stuff we're playing, where right? disco was on top, yeah. punk rock is coming in, and then you've got massive arena acts. And Kiss, you know. Kiss. How, how does Leonard Skinner compete with Kiss these guys from the punk South. rock and disco, and so then you got Skinner? It's, uh, you know, it's it's pretty, pretty impressive that a band like that from Florida could just come out of nowhere and do it, no frills, and, and be right. that big. Yeah, and they totally were. Awesome stuff. And now for something totally different. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the Sex Pistols, and we've been talking about punk rock all through this episode, the first part and the second part. But when it comes down to it, you know, this band was more influential on the punk rock scene than I think anybody else. Because if nothing else, they got more attention than anybody else did. They had the most infamy. And by, yeah, infamy, exactly. Because by 77, you know, they've been making waves for quite a while and they haven't even recorded a debut album. They just knew how to piss people off. They just knew how to piss people (laughs) off. Talk about Glenn Matlock on bass, Paul Cook on drums, Steve Jones on guitar, and of course, Johnny Rotten singing lead, talking about the Sex Pistols. They released the single for God Save the Queen in 1976, and by 77, Sid Vicious would replace Matlock as the bass player and they would basically become the poster boys for the uk punk movement Mm -hmm. absolutely i mean bar none no question about it they were not great musicians no but they really didn't give a shit to be yeah steve jones is pretty good but i mean they were what they were they didn't give a shit they weren't anything nice to look at but you know that was part of the charm too back then they were the anti-zeppelin is, oh, totally. It's just the the best way to describe punk rock That's a good way of is to describe the Sex Pistols as they were the anti-Zeppelin. They were starting to make headlines by purposely being offensive, inciting violence wherever they went, and even fighting with their own audience. And to be honest with you, they gained way more notoriety for their wild antics and bad behavior than they ever got for their songs. Some of them riffs are so catchy and awesome, and some of the songs just grab you the way they do. It's it's an iconic album for a reason, you know, and songs like Pretty Vacant, Holidays in the Sun, Anarchy in the UK, Bodies, and No Feelings is a testament to that.
Now, being decibel geeks the way we are, you know, we're big 80s, early 90s rock guys, you know, bands that have that sound. And I think the true testament to the influence of the Sex Pistols is the amount of times that these songs have been covered by bands that we all love and respect. Right. Was punk rock just as much a gimmick as the Space Ace, the Demon, the Catman, and the Star Child? I think it was. You make the call. I, it's kind of, that's the funny thing is like, there, I know there's a lot of Kiss fans out there, and I might be talking to you, that you love Kiss, but you think punk rock is just garbage. Right. Take yourself out of it for a second as a Kiss fan and view both. There's not that much difference there. Not really, because Kiss was never known as virtuosos. Not I mean, at all. Yeah, they had a lot of style. They really rocked it, was, it out. There was a lot about attitude. There, it was totally. Kiss was about attitude. So totally, you can't. They're not that much different from each other. But I think more of the argument will come from the punk rock side to say this is something noble and honest. And you know, ask the Clash. They saw what the Sex Pistols were doing. They were out there offending people and getting their name in the papers. They didn't even have a freaking album out, and these guys wow. were already huge. They knew, you know, they, they knew, knew what let's would get be headlines. offensive, let's be dirtbags, let's be scumballs. Of course. Let's do this and, you know, rock out some tunes and, you know, the media is eating it up. Right. We're just playing well, to them. I, That's no different than Kiss or any, anybody else that works that gimmick. I think that there was a definite healthy hatred of the establishment that those guys had. Oh, totally. And I know they were trying to project that, you know, and like we're speaking for the youth culture of the UK. Oh, they really did hate Pink Floyd. But at the same time, Johnny Rotten is not stupid. He right. knew that it would sell newspapers and he knew that it would sell albums and it knew he knew that he would become famous from doing it. It was a culture that needed a soundtrack. Yeah, but let's not pretend that there was no ego involved in this. Right. They knew what the fuck they were doing. They totally did. I mean, they even... they even wrote a song bashing EMI, their record label. They had just signed with the record label, and then they bashed them so they would get dropped because right. they knew it would make headlines. that's part of the news story. Right. Yeah, that's part of the hype. It's all about the hype. So I'm going to use that as a segue into my next song. Okay. EMI dropped them because they bashed them. Well, my next band that I'm playing was on EMI, and it's about as far as you can go from the Sex Pistols. Well, maybe not geographically. Not geographically, but as far as their status in rock and roll goes, oh, yeah. pretty different. Oh, way different. I'm talking about Queen. They put out News of the World on October 28th. This was their sixth studio album, as I said, released on EMI Records. It has gone on to sell over 10 million copies. During this time, the punk rock movement went into full effect, and this song was viewed as something of a jab at the musicians who felt bands like Queen were too self-indulgent. Yeah. Of note is the lyric, I feel so inarticulate. And the fact that drummer Roger Taylor stated in interviews that he thought many of the 1970s punk bands had very little talent. Yeah. But honestly, when you listen to this song, even though it may be a jab, it's got a little bit of a punk rock sound to it. And attitude. This is Queen with Sheer Heart Attack. Well, you're just 17. Only one of you will disappear.
yourself for the invasion of your home by Dr. Funkenstein and the entire P-Funk Earth Tour. The first Parliament live album, a double album, a double dose of funk. Now you can do that stuff in the privacy of your own castle. Get out and get Parliament live, and it will get you. From Casablanca Record and Filmworks, Parliament Live. I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud. I'm part of an original crowd. And if you look around these days, there seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. If you drink Dr. Pepper, you're a pepper too. Be a pepper, drink Dr. Pepper. Be a pepper, drink. Next, on Shields and Yarnell, Robert climbs the ladder of success. The clinkers get set to move. <laughs> Green leads a fast-stepping chorus line, all on the refreshing Shields and Yarnell show. Monday, following the Jeffersons on CBS. In the dark, but now you've come That's awful. It hurts my ears. That is Debbie Boone doing You Light Up My Life. It's like the biggest song in the world in 1977, yeah, right? Yeah, I kind of, I couldn't really ignore it. When I started looking at the Billboard charts for the year, this was like yeah. the longest charting song of the year. Yeah, it totally was. Ten weeks at number one in 1977. There was a lot of drugs being done in 1977. <laughs> That's my only excuse. Totally true. It wasn't all good rock and roll. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But something we always like to talk about, it's always, especially for the ages that we were yeah. in 1977, it's always fun to look back at what toys were popular. Yeah, because now it's just an iPad, right. an iPod. No, Do they even make action phone. figures anymore? Not really, I don't think. Jeez. Uh, toys in 1977. Oh, they make, some of the, wait a minute. They make Star Wars action figures. They do now, yeah. Yeah, they do. That's the one thing that won't die. Um, some of the most famous toys of the year, uh, Hobie Hot Dogger Skateboard. Now, I was trying to look at that and figure out, is that one of the little skinny plastic yeah. ones, or is that one of the first bigger ones? No, it was like a skinny plastic I board. hated those skateboards. <laughs> Man, I hated those. They were big in 77. How the hell did anybody ride those? I don't They're know. They're so skinny. And then, uh, of course, as you heard last week in the commercial, Slinky was a very popular toy. And I just want everybody to know on that note that I've been playing with my Slinky since 1977, and I play with it still to this day. I don't need to know that. And it's awesome. Greatest thing ever. Greatest toy ever. Put I'll that, never get sick of playing with it. Put it away. All right. Also, it goes upstairs, around chairs. It goes. It's taken me on all kinds of crazy adventures. I know. We over heard the, the lady last week. She explained okay. it. Um, also, Street King skates, like like roller skates, were very big that year. Oh yeah. I bet. Uh, Charlie's Angels dolls. Yeah, they made what like Barbie dolls. Yeah, they were like Barbie dolls. I think. I don't know. I didn't own one. What do you look at me for? <laughs> Your now, parents bought them for nowadays you. Nowadays, that would take on a totally different connotation. I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure. Only order it online. Um, Star Wars action figures. I had to have them, man. I was when I was this age. That was that was it, man. I wanted that stuff. 
I will never forget the Christmas that my parents got me. The Remember they had the Darth Vader carrying case? Mm-hmm. And it was like his bust, his shoulders and head, and then he opened it up and inside had all the little cartridges for all the guys. That year for Christmas, my parents bought me that thing, and it was half full of guys. And it was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is the greatest moment ever. I'm still chasing that. Yeah. Also, Viewmaster was popular that year. Can you imagine handing a kid a Viewmaster nowadays? They'd be like, what the shit? <laughs> Give me your iPod now, old man. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, portable 8-track and cassette players were big in 1977. How can that? That's awesome. You know, you just take it with you. I know. You can walk anywhere and listen You can't to just, me. like, carry the, the record player around. Only weighs 25 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> We've come a long way. You needed it. You, you couldn't just sit still and listen to these bands that are coming out in 77 because there's some great rocking bands coming out. Here's a good one for you. Canadian hard rock and power trio. Oh, yeah. Talking about Triumph. They're back to follow up their 1976 self-titled debut with Rock and Roll Machine. This is a very aptly titled album. Loved greatly by their people back in Canada, Rock and Roll Machine would go on to do double platinum in Canada alone. But 1977 wouldn't be the peak of Triumph's success. But it's absolutely my favorite album by the band. This the guitar solo in the the title track alone is amazing. Stellar guitar work from Rick Emick through this whole thing. And and if you don't know about Triumph Rock and Roll Machine and you love awesome guitar solos, this is it.
Also really popular in San Antonio, Texas. One of the biggest late 80s Canadian tours featured Triumph along with Moxie and Trooper. Moxie. Like and the, Trooper, yeah. And Trooper. The Moxie's That's, like the Zeppelin of Canada. That was the big, yeah, that was the big Canadian tour in the late 70s. Hmm, Great like band, cool. Triumph. A little more credit than they deserve, I think. Definitely. Or they, they deserve more credit than they get, I should say. The uh, Yeah, the next band uh, also deserves more credit than they got, uh, a band called Riot. Yeah, uh, and uh, they in '77 they put out their first studio album released on Firesign Records. Uh, this an album was called Rock City, and it's the only Riot album to feature writing contributions by original bassist Phil Fight, who went on to join act, acts such as Billy Idol, playing on his hits "Hot in the City" and "White Wedding." Yeah, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts and Adam Bomb, where he briefly crossed paths with another Riot member, drummer Sandy Slavin, who oh, yeah. would go on to play with Ace Frehley. That's right. I always tie it back to Kiss. Totally. Even it took like seven degrees that time, but we did. But so they put out Rock City in November of 1977, and this is a track called Angel. Like Triumph, another highly underrated band from 1977. Interesting album covers. Yeah, with monkeys and stuff yeah. on them. Right? What was on the album cover of this one? 
It's the monkey. It's the monkey. <laughs> whatever it was. Of course I don't it know. is. Of that course it's strange, the monkey. Strange uh, album covers with that same character was like uh, Eddie before Eddie. See, and that's the thing about Riot, though, is like, you know, you say they're underrated, but man, if, if the listeners think that you forgot Riot from any episode that they should be in, they will let you know real quick. They will. I saw that. They were like, where's Riot? <laughs> part two, sir. I promise. Part two. Another band that put out an album in 77 was Blue Oyster Cult. They put out the Spectres album. B.O.C. Their fifth studio album released on Columbia Records, certified gold in January of 78. The big hit from this album, of course, was the song Godzilla, which was a massive, massive hit. I would have thought that, you know, it's funny to think about this and you look at 77 and it gives you a new perspective on timeline. You know, it's like the height of Kiss Mania. Where were the rest of these bands? You know, it kind of gives you, because you know, what you know about Blue Oyster Cult was back in the day from 77, Kiss opened for them one year, and the next year around, they were opening for Kiss, you know. But they were still around. But Blue Oyster Cult was still around and still viable, you know, so they didn't, it's not like Blue Oyster Cult ended when Kiss showed up. They they trudged it out and had some of their biggest hits since. And a cool way to tie Blue Oyster Cult and Kiss together. Aaron and I saw Paul Stanley's son play Godzilla live. We totally did. <laughs> That's right. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. Yeah. So, but this is a different track from the Spectres album in 1977. This is a song called Are You Ready to Rock? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready to rock. I'm always ready to rock. That's why we do this show. It keeps me from rocking other places that it's inappropriate to rock at. Yeah, don't do that in the grocery store. Exactly. <laughs> You'll be talking to people about Blue Oyster Cult when we're in here in the Kroger. I did hear Leonard Skinner at the Kroger the other day. Yeah? I was like, wow. We're nice. old, aren't we? So uh, let's move into December. We're almost done with the 1977 year in review. Yeah, we're getting there. It's pretty good. We've had some great music to go through Absolutely. this year. And, uh, and the, you've got one of my favorite albums of all time coming up I next. I love this album. And this is my last pick of the show. This is Aerosmith. They put out the Draw the Line album on December 1st. It was their fifth studio album released on Columbia Records, recorded in an abandoned convent in New York City, rented out for that purpose. That's metal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, produced, of course, by Aerosmith and Jack Douglas. And uh, this song, written by, of course, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. This is the future theme song for Viagra. This is a song called Get It Up.
They didn't even know what Viagra was in 77. Oh, but they knew they'd be rocking when they were old one of these days. Yeah. Nobody had problems getting it up in 77, apparently. Uh, We couldn't do a 77-year interview and not play something from Draw the Line. No, hell no, you couldn't. Here's another band you wouldn't want to do a 1977-year interview without. And it's kind of hard to believe that by 77, the Scorpions are five albums deep with the release of Taken by Force. The Scorpions are pretty much struggling and none of their studio albums including this one have charted on anybody's album charts anywhere you know they're in germany they're not even charting in germany i mean these guys are working hard and not getting a whole lot of results off of it it's the last scorpions album to feature uli john roth on lead guitar and the first to feature the drumming of herman rarebell it's a shame that this album didn't get the recognition that it deserved at the time when it came out because in retrospect it's considered one of the scorpions best albums and with songs like we'll burn the sky sales sharon steam rock fever i love that song he's a woman she's a man Times are tough for the Scorpions, even though they're kicking a whole lot of ass and people won't realize that until they get some good worldwide public attention. But they won't give up because they're the Scorpions (laughs) and they never give up. And don't worry, just like many others we've talked about here in the last two weeks, they will outlast the scene and hard rock returns to glory. It'll be the 80s, and things will be real good for the Scorpions. Yeah, they're still around now. Yeah, they are. Kicking ass. Some of the best music. Yeah, some of the best music they ever came out with came out this year, this many years later. How cool is that? Pretty crazy. So, you know, we've had a good time talking about 1977, and it's been a fantastic year for music. But as we always want to remind you, here's the big disclaimer at the end. It wasn't all rocking back in 1977. Of course, it's never always rocking. This year had a surplus of amazing music, but there were some songs out there that were huge hit single songs like like disco songs, because that's starting to come up too now, like Car Wash. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that one. Uh, you Make Me Feel Like Dancing. Yep. You know that one? Yeah. Dancing Queen. We talked about ABBA. I'm Your Boogeyman was a huge hit. Best of My Love. We played a little of that earlier on coming in from a break. That was a huge hit. And then, you know, and you talk about, like, the effects of what was going on in England and in Europe with the punk rock stuff. 
And what was going on in the States on the radio with a lot of the what today we would consider like AM gold music. You know, talking about like, okay, you can't talk about 1977 without talking about Hotel California. Yeah, but we don't need to play any of it. We don't need to play any of it, but you got to kind of mention it. And so I just did. So there we go. (laughs) No one needs to hear that song again. You know, huge songs, Hotel California, New Kid in Town, both go to yeah, number I one. Like that song. Of course, you got Fleetwood Mac is huge in 77 mm-hmm. with Dreams. That was a big number one hit single. Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. We talked about that a little bit. That was yeah. huge. How Deep Is Your Love? Seven Inches. How? <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Uh, you know, <laughs> how huge are the Bee Gees in 77? Yeah. You know, songs like uh, Looks Like We Made It. Oh, That's man. another AM gold <laughs> one right there. Barry Manilow. Yeah. Blinded by the light. Yeah. Wrapped up like a douche. <laughs> That's what everybody thinks they're saying. Torn between two lovers. Everybody, these are songs we hear on commercials all the all time the now. Time. Tonight's the Night by The Rod. The Rod. He told you, tonight's the night. Yeah. And of course, back then, you got... <laughs> Yeah, your teen favorites and guys like Sean Cassidy and Andy Gibb. Oh, wow. You know, squeaky clean. They're in the magazines with Kiss yeah. in 77. Kiss shared many covers with Sean Cassidy. Yeah, they did. <laughs> think of think of 17 Beat or Tiger Beat or whatever yeah. the magazines were for the girls that were just as big back then as they were in the 80s. And yep. you think about that because my Aunt Peggy one time gave me an old like Tiger Beat magazine. Yep. And I'll never forget that it had all these like squeaky clean looking handsome young 70s dudes. Yes. And kiss, you know, <laughs> so you can't deny it. And like we said earlier, probably the number one song, the biggest song in 1977. Oh, yeah. You, you Light Up My Life. Totally. By Debbie Boone. There was <sighs> nothing bigger than that song. Nothing more squeaky clean than that. So that's 77. But, wow. but we got to. Right, let's close out strong here. Yeah, let's. We're going to have to close out strong because we're talking about Margaritaville and New Ugh. Kid in Town and all that garbage. We got to close out strong because <laughs> when it's 1977 and Kiss Mania is at its peak, it's and wild. this is this is the year I want to live in forever. I want the world to go back to the way it was in 1977. I wish it could, you know. And obviously, we talked about it earlier. If you talk about like big hit albums in 1977, one of the biggest hit albums of 77 was Rock and Roll Over. Mm-hmm. That came out in the late 76, like yeah. November. So that carried over and was a huge hit, you know. And so then they follow it up almost, it seems like, in the public conscious immediately with Love Gun. Right. You know, because it wasn't until that really started taking off because it, it with Kiss, it all falls behind. Mm-hmm. They come out with Destroyer, it feels like it's flopping. We got to get back in the studio and follow it up quick because this ain't happening. Right. Then, like you said, bam, there's Beth. Yep. Pulls it back up. So then you got, they're already in the studio, rock and roll over. That comes out in late 76. So by 77, you know, Kiss is already, you know, known at least for the Beth song. Right. You know, and starting to get known for the live versions of rock and roll all night and things like that. You got the people in the streets that are calling the radio stations demanding to hear Kiss for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting to the point now where these people have seen Kiss live a few times. You know, every time they come through, it's new fans because there's people that went and seen them last time that came back and said, holy shit. This is the greatest band I've ever seen live in my life. You have to come see it. This is 1977 is the culmination of a whole lot of years of hard-ass work by a band that was just doing anything to make it, and they did. They went out there by their own sweat, you know, night after night after night, 
and played shows that weren't sold out all the time, right. you know, and really earned their reputation. Well, a reputation like Kiss's is easy to remember. So, like I said, by 77, things are looking pretty damn sweet. So after Love Gun, well, first after the success of Rock and Roll All Night, after the success of Rock and Roll Over, followed up almost, it seemed like, immediately by Love Gun, which we talked about in part one, one of the greatest albums of all time. Kiss comes right back and continues to conquer with a K. <laughs> and this one was originally intended to be rele- released before Love Gun in 1977, kind of as a Kiss Live at Budokan kind of thing, right? Yeah. Recorded during five sold-out shows that were Beatle-wrecking Beatle record breaking shows in Japan. But when the band listened back to the tapes, they didn't approve it and went ahead with finishing their sixth studio album instead. That's Love Gun. Kiss has got a lot of shit for their over marketing over the years, but what they did in with Kiss Alive 2 in 1977 was freaking brilliant. They had hit their peak in popularity and had just been voted in the Gallup poll as America's most popular band. We're not talking about the Eagles. We're not talking about Fleetwood Mac. We're talking about freaking Kiss. That's right. And when people are taking the Gallup poll, it's because they're hardworking Americans. This ain't nothing. This ain't variety. And this ain't, you know, the what's the the big paper, the New York Times or, yeah. or the Village Voice. This is Gallup poll is the people. Right. So when Kiss wins this, I think this really intensifies the fact that this has always been a band of the people. A popular band that has been touring extensively, and it's time to give the fans another souvenir of seeing the hottest band in the world live in concert. So the timing was perfect, and I don't mean because Christmas is right around the corner. I mean, between the studio tracks, the awesome gatefold picture of the band in concert mid-explosions, the book on the evolution of Kiss, the scary bloody picture of Gene on the cover, I mean, that had to strike you as a kid, right? Totally. Man, love that stuff. You know, and then you get the... The order form, the tattoos, they just don't do it like that anymore. Although they still played a lot of their older material, Kiss didn't want to repeat any of the material that appeared on a live. So the new live album, it leaves a lot of room for some brand new Kiss studio tracks. And it leaves that open for side four of the album. Amazing songs. Larger Than Life, Any Way You Want It, Rockin' in the USA, All American Man, and Rocket Ride.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.